Good morning. My name is Mark, one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be here this morning to open the Word of God together as we begin our Advent series in the book of Isaiah, which is an incredible place to go for Advent. And so Advent means arrival. It means the coming of Jesus into the world. And there's two Advents. There's the first Advent, which we talk about today at Christmas, and there's the second Advent, which is as Jay said, we, what we're longing for. And we live between this inner Advent period. Christ has come and he will come again in glory. So we're gonna be taking a break from our Luke series as we look at the wonders of Christmas. And as we look at different hopes and promises in the book of Isaiah about the story of Christmas. Now, what comes into your mind when you hear wonder? Maybe you think of something that's amazing, incredible. Maybe this could be anything from the birth of a child to a football play or whatever it might be that captures your attention. This is incredible. I think about people coming to Colorado for the first time and what happens as they see the mountains. There's a sense of awe, wonder. That's incredible. But what happens if you've been in Colorado a while? Maybe this is me because sometimes I can be a bad Colorado and I look at the mountains and I just think, okay, that's West. <laughs> but they lose their wonder. Or it could be the same thing. You look at the night sky and on one night you might just say, wow, the stars, the galaxies, the glory of the heavens. And on another night you might just say, I've seen it before. And our hope for this series is that your wonder at the sense of Christmas would grow. That as we consider Christmas, as we consider this story that shapes and defines the church, God's people, that, that our hope would, and our wonder would grow. We're specifically talking this morning about the first wonder of the wonder of light and Christ coming into the world as the light of the world. Now, when we talk about light and darkness, we know that those concepts go beyond just physical light and darkness. Think about many movies, books, TV shows, whatever it might be. We know that in stories, it's often that good is represented by light and darkness. Um, it represents evil. You just think about something like Lord of the Rings. You have the Dark Lord Sauron. You have dark lands and things like that. We know there's a sense of goodness and darkness, light and dark. Light is something that exposes, it reveals, it pushes back the darkness. It, it heals, it gives us hope. It tells us that there's a new day on the horizon. But darkness is where danger dwells. It's place of nightmare, it's a place of death, it's, it's a place of uncertainty and confusion and fear and depression and despair and gloom. And in our world, we of course see good, we see light, we see love, we see hope, but we also see evil, we see war, we see injustice, we see suffering, we see death. And so what we're talking about this morning is light and the hope that we have with Christ as the light of the world. And, and in order to do that, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Isaiah 9, one through seven, which was the passage that was read just a moment ago. And then we're gonna look at a few other key texts that talk about this theme of light throughout the scriptures. And so we'll begin in Isaiah 9, one through seven. If you have your Bibles, you can open them there. There's uh, Bibles in the seats and the verses will also be on the screen. But a little bit of background as we jump into Isaiah 9. Here's what you need to know. Isaiah 9 was written about 700 years before Jesus' incarnation. So before Jesus steps into the world as a human, it's been 700 years that this text has been written. And yet it talks so much about the life and ministry of Jesus 
that Isaiah has often been called the fifth gospel. Like you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah speaks so much that some people said this is like the fifth gospel where all the scriptures are testifying to Jesus. And here we see in Isaiah such clear and vivid promises about Jesus. And there's two big themes that run throughout the book of Isaiah. One of them is judgment. God's judgment on his people for their sin and on the nations for their sin. But the other theme that goes right with it is salvation, the hope of salvation for God's people and the hope of salvation for the whole world. And these two themes are are essential as we jump into Isaiah 9 because this text comes in the context of a prophecy of judgment where God is telling his people that this great army Assyria is going to sweep into the land and they are going to overtake the people of Israel. They're going to take them into exile. Some of them are eventually going to be deported out of the land and some of them will stay, but none of them will be home anymore because they're going to be ruled over by an oppressive enemy force as a judgment for their sin because they have rebelled, they have turned against God, they have forgotten him. And so there's this prophecy that this judgment is coming. But then we go to Isaiah 9 and and what we begin to see is the hope for those who sit in this exile and judgment. That though God is judging his people, he is also going to save his people. So this is where Isaiah 9 verse 1 picks up. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, it's just been prophesied that Assyria, this great army is going to come, they're going to sweep into the land and they're going to take over this territory. But now it's said there's going to be no more gloom. This land that's brought into contempt, there's going to be no more gloom. There's going to be hope for those who are in darkness and exile. And it mentions two places that I want you to remember, Zebulon and Naphtali. And these are significant places because they would have been in the northern part of Israel. So what would have happened is when when Assyria would have swept in, these would have been among the first places to come under the enemy rule. Some of the first places to be invaded and overtaken. And yet it's to them, to this people that that God is promising through Isaiah that he is going to do something. Verse 2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now it's looking forward, but it's spoken as though it's already happened. Those dwelling in darkness have had this great light dawn and shine upon them. And you get this image, this this darkened land, this, this land that is hopeless and despair and despondency. And all of a sudden, this bright light of hope is rising upon them. God is going to save his people and verse 3 talks about the joy of God's people being saved. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This joy is pictured through two images. One is harvest, when you take in the fruits, when you take in the crops. The other one is dividing the spoil, victory after a battle. And we're told why there's such a reason for this celebration and joy in verses four to five. It says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, 
you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now these images are pointing us to this idea that there's this enemy who is ruling over them harshly. And we're told that the rod of the oppressor, you imagine the enemy wielding this rod over them, that that rod is going to be broken. It's going to be defeated. The oppression will cease. And it's said that it will be like the day of Midian, which is looking back to a time in God's people's history, in Israel's history, when they were overtaken by an enemy. And God raised up Gideon and used him and just 300 men to free them from this massive army that was oppressing them, of about 135,000. So God is saying here through Isaiah that he's going to accomplish this great salvation. If you want to see what God is going to do, just look in the past. You've seen him and deliver in miraculous ways, and he is going to do something miraculous again to save his people. Verse 5 says, For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You get this image, it's like this bonfire, and what's being thrown into it? The garments of war. This is a total victory for God. And it's an end of war. It's an end of oppression. It's it's a beginning of a new era of peace. And Isaiah prophesies about this in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 2, 4, he talks about a time when nations won't rise against each other with the sword. They won't raise the sword against each other. They won't learn war anymore, but rather people will take their swords and they'll beat them into plowshares. They won't need their swords to fight one another, so they'll use them for something fruitful, to cultivate the land, to bring forth produce. It's like if we were to take tanks, say we don't need battle anymore, let's use these tanks to farm and to pull farming material, to, to till the land. This is the type of image that something is going to fundamentally change and God will bring in this era of peace. In verses six to seven then, it's told how this will all occur or who is going to accomplish this. Verse six says this, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So his promise is a child, a son is going to be given to God's people who will save them. And this is no ordinary child. His name is Wonderful Counselor. He leads the people with this divine wisdom from God. His name is Mighty God. So great is this ruler, so closely identified with God that it is right to call this ruler Mighty God. His name is Everlasting Father. There is no end to his days. And he leads and guides his people like a loving father, caring for them in their need and leading them. And his name is Prince of Peace. He brings in shalom. He brings peace to his people. And we're told that he's going to sit on the throne of David. And for the Jews at this time, as they're sitting in exile, they've been waiting for a ruler. They've been waiting for a leader who's going to sit on the throne of David, who's a great leader in their past. And God had promised David that someone would sit on his throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. So they're looking for this ruler. 
And it's told that this son, this child, will be like the great rule of David, who will sit on the throne forever and lead his people. So this is the hope of Christmas in Isaiah 9. These are people in darkness. There's people in gloom. There's people in despair. But God is going to do something to save his people. He is going to bring a son into the world who will change their darkness into light. He is going to bring hope to those who are in exile. And this is a hope that's talked about 2,700 years ago. I mean, it's incredible to think about this. That this text comes from 2,700 years ago. And yet the hope that it promises is really the greatest hope that we could possibly have. I mean, it was the hope that they needed at their time in exile, but it's also the hope that we need today. Because think, what can you actually give? What hope would top this hope? It's talking about a time when the course of history is going to be so changed that an era of peace will be brought in. We talk so much about bringing peace into the world, but how many of us actually believe that that can occur? How many of us actually believe that there's going to be such a change in history that, that no longer will we know or learn war? No longer will there be kingdom after kingdom coming and attacking and, and bringing power over. I mean, even as we look in the world, we see oppression. We see war. And it's become a normal part of life. And here we're promised that something is going to fundamentally change. This ruler, this king, who is called the Prince of Peace, is going to bring in shalom, peace for God's people on a holistic level. It's promising an end to despair and gloom. That for those who sit in a darkness, and not just physical darkness, but a spiritual, a deep darkness, a gloom, that there's going to be a hope that is brought into the world, a light that will deal with our despair, with gloom, with darkness. This people has been far from God, they have gone into exile because they have forgotten their God. And yet God is promising that he is going to do something in the course of history to rescue and save his people. That he's going to establish a kingdom where peace reigns, where justice reigns. That no longer do we live in a world that's defined and lives in despair and hopelessness and gloom, but we live in a world of joy and hope and justice forevermore. And this is the story of Christmas. It's a story that we've been telling ourselves as a community for thousands of years. But it's really the greatest story that we have. And some stories, as you continue to tell them, you realize they just get better. You realize that the implications of them are more vast than we could have ever imagined. And that's the way it is with story. That's the way it is with Christmas. It's a story that grows over time. It's a story that builds and shapes us as a community that we remind ourselves of. Because it's not just for us a mere story, it's actually the reality of hope that we have. That God is going to save his people, that he has done something in history to save his people. And yet for those who were in need of this hope, who were given this hope, it would be another 700 years before they would really see the full force of these promises begin to be fulfilled as they waited for Jesus to be born. Yet we know the story, 700 years, Jesus is born into a humble place. He's born into a manger, to a virgin Mary. And, and he's born into a darkened world. And as Matthew, one of the gospel writers, writes about the story and the life of Jesus, 
He continues to quote the Old Testament to talk about how Jesus is coming and fulfilling the hope of all that has been spoken before. This is Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, which says this, as Matthew quotes Isaiah 9. He says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, talking of Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And living in Naz- leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So notice what's happening here. As Jesus begins his public ministry in the book of Matthew, where does he go? He goes to Zebulon and Naphtali, the first into exile, this place that is sitting in darkness. And here is Jesus, the light of the world. And he comes to those who have been sitting in darkness and fulfillment of the scriptures and hope of what God was going to do to save the people. He comes and he, he comes to those who have been sitting in darkness, who had gone into exile, who were sitting in darkness because of their sin, because they had rejected God. And in Matthew 4, 16, the people's condition is described as so bleak that it's described as though they're dwelling in the region and shadow of death. And just, just think about that for a moment. To say of your life, to say of your condition that, how are you doing? Well, things are so dark that it's like I'm dwelling in death. I'm living in a land of death. I'm living under the shadow of death. This is the spiritual condition of the people described because they're there, they're moving about, but what are they living in? Darkness, gloom, and hopelessness. And maybe you've been there in your life. You know what it's like to be in this place of darkness and gloom and despair. And it's into that place that Christ comes, that he shines his light. And not only that, this area is defined by this Gentile presence. So there was Jews who were the Israelite people, but then there was Gentiles. And this land was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus is coming here as a light to those who are in darkness, but he's also coming representatively here to all people. In our series of the book of Luke, we talk about Jesus as good news for all people. And where is Jesus coming here? He's coming to Jew and Gentile. It's a message of salvation. It's the light of salvation being brought representatively here to the entire world, where Jesus comes in as the light of the world. So there's several key truths, there's several key things that we learn in this passage about salvation. And one of them is this, that Jesus comes for the undeserving. Just think about what this territory is. This is a land, a place that has been defined historically by rebellion towards God which is why they're in the shadow of death and darkness. This is not a a people who have called out and who have sought God and who have shown that they're worthy of some sort of gift that Jesus would then come to them. This is the place that is defined historically by rebellion and now sits in a sense of darkness and despair. And yet here Jesus comes to the 
deserving as the light of the world. Think about this for a moment. We have a cultural story about gifts given at Christmas. And we talk about Santa Claus. It's a funny illustration, but think about it with me for a moment. What do we say about Santa? You know, you gotta be on the good list in order to get a good gift. And if not, what do you get? You get a lump of coal. Of course, you don't want that. And so there's the good list, there's the bad list, and your gifts are given according to your merit, according to your worth. Now, of course, that's, that's an example of a mythological idea that we have in our culture that we tell for fun. But even that, I mean, isn't Santa supposed to be like the peak of benevolence and goodness? Yeah, even there, what does he do? He gives gifts to those who deserve. And we can often think that this is the way that our world should operate. If I'm a good person, I get good. If I'm a bad person, I get bad. And yet here is Christ who operates so according to the, so, so differently than the standards often that we think that God might operate according to. Who does Jesus come to in his first advent? He comes to those who are in darkness. He comes to the undeserving. He comes to those who are far from God, who have nothing to offer. See, the gift of Christmas the ultimate gift of Christmas is not a gift that we deserve or merited or earned from God, but the ultimate gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ coming into the world to a people who are in darkness, who don't deserve. And yet this is the message of the gospel that God saves sinners, not because of something that we can offer to him, but simply because he is a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. And he delights to put his grace and his mercy on display to us, the undeserving. And so we see in this story that Jesus comes and he comes for the undeserving, but he also comes for all people. It would be easy perhaps to think if you were a Jew at this time that Jesus will just come to the Jews. But who does Jesus come for? He comes to the Jew and the Gentile. And that we may put categories around who we think Jesus is really here for, who we think he really can save. But what we see in this passage is that, it, is that it's not about who you are, your background, your upbringing, your nationality, your ethnicity. It's not about who you are, nor what you've done. He comes for the undeserving. And so what is it about? It's this offer of salvation, that Christ comes as the light of the world to those who are in darkness. And it's hope of good news for all people. And we see also here that not only did Christ come to the undeserving and for all people, but his kingdom demands a response. This is what we see in verse 17. As Jesus comes, here he is as the light of the world, coming into a world of darkness. And this is his message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His kingdom is calling for a response. And repentance is this. It's turning away from whatever we might be living for, living in. It's turning away from sin. It's turning away from evil. It's turning away from darkness and going to Christ and letting his light shine upon us, being defined by him and his kingdom and living a new life in light of who he is and what he has done when he has brought his kingdom of light into the world, when he saves his people. And there's different reasons that we might say no to this. One of them is simply that sometimes we're afraid. We're afraid of having what we have in our lives, the things that we're doing exposed. 
Jesus talks about one point that, that in John 3 that sometimes people do love darkness. And why do they love darkness? Because their works are evil. They don't want them to be exposed. Have you ever been there? I know we probably all have, where there's something that we've done that we don't want exposed. We don't want it to be seen in the light. And so darkness is more comfortable. But what Jesus is calling us to is to come to the light. Because in the light, there is healing and there is peace and there is salvation. No matter the darkness that we have, no matter the sin that we have, Christ comes as a savior to his people. Now, if you're a Jew at this time and you've been living in captivity, you've been living in exile for hundreds of years under different rulers, and you hear it said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what might you think? You might wonder, is now the time? Are we gonna get rid of these Romans? Are we gonna overthrow the Roman Empire? Because if the king is really here, surely it's time that he's gonna overthrow the Roman Empire. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't do that. He does something much greater. He doesn't come primarily to deal with political powers because in one sense, that's just far too easy. I mean, history is marked by revolutions and counter-revolutions. That happens all the time. He comes to deal with a much more oppressive foe. He comes to deal with a much greater darkness than the Roman Empire. He comes to deal with sin and death itself. And the devil who has held these forces against God's people. Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14 tells us this. You think about the work of Jesus. Verse 12 talks about the Father who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In verses 13 to 14, talk about the Father doing this for us. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The Father takes us and he delivers us from darkness, the shadow of death through his son. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son by giving us the forgiveness of sins. He redeems us. He takes us from this state of oppressive force and power ruling over us, the powers of sin and darkness and death and evil. And he brings us into his kingdom by giving us forgiveness and salvation through his son, by transferring us to a new way of life in the kingdom of his son, where we have an inheritance in verse 12, it says, with the saints in light. Our hope is to dwell with God in the light of his glory. And so Jesus comes and in his first advent, he doesn't do what many expect him to do, but he goes to the very most fundamental issue that his people really struggle with, which is that they are overtaken by darkness and sin and evil. And he goes directly there. This is the story of Jesus going to the cross, that he goes to the full depths of darkness on the cross. He goes to the depths of sin, of, of despair and doom by taking our sin upon himself. And in that moment of darkness, he descends all the way down so that he might bring us out. This is Jesus who comes as the light of the world so that he might bring us into his kingdom. In his first advent, he deals with the most fundamental problem, sin and death. He performs an exile, not away from the Roman empire, 
but away from the kingdom of darkness that we were living under. And this is the story of Christmas. So Christmas is not a mild story. It's a story of great humility in Jesus, but it's really a story of a renewal of all things. It's Jesus coming as the light of the world and bringing his light into the world to deliver us. And one day our hope as Christians is that all creation will be conformed to the reality of Christ. That, that Jesus who has died and rose again will make all things new. And this is the picture we get as we look to the New Testament and as we look towards the end of the scriptures in Revelation 22, a time when God's light fills the entire earth. One way that you can think about salvation is like this. It's like a mountain. And so God saves his people. But when Christ comes and saves his people, there's two peaks to that mountain. There's the first and the second advent. As we've said already a few times this morning, where do we sit today? Where do we stand and live today? We live between the two advents. Christ has come and he will come again in glory. Maybe you've hiked up a mountain before and as you get to the top of the first peak, you look out and you see the wonder. You see the beauty, you see the glory. You say, ah, it's an incredible view. But you know that at the top of the second peak, the view is even better. And this is the wonder that we have as Christians. We have seen so much in the life and ministry of Christ. We've seen Christ come to save his people. But the hope that we have as Christians today is that the glory that's to come is even greater. In Revelation 22, verses three to five, gives us this picture of what we're looking for at the consummation, at the fullness of human history. Revelation 22, three says this, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of sin is done away with. Christ has taken the curse upon himself. It is no more. The curse of sin was everything from thorns and thistles in the ground to pain and death. You think about what ways have suffering, or what ways has the curse affected our lives? To what extent have we experienced the effects of suffering, grief, death? Isaac Watts in his classic song, Joy to the World, which is a classic Christmas song, says this. He says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? far as the curse is found. And how far in our lives, how far in our world have we seen the curse of sin and death? To what extent have we been affected by our own sin, the sin of others, or the reality that we live in a broken world? What ways have we experienced grief and death and suffering and loss and pain and hardship? We're told that our hope is that he comes to make his blessings flow into those areas. There will no longer be anything accursed. Verse four goes on and it tells us of the hope that we have that we will be one day with God himself, who is light. Verse four says this, they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. So what's, what's our hope as Christians? Christ said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And here we see that they shall see his face. That one day as Christians, we will see the very face of God. We will dwell in the presence of God. And it's said that his name will be written on our foreheads. Now, it used to be that the high priest 
would, would, dwell, would have on his head written, holy to the Lord. And the high priest would be in the very presence of God in the, in the holy of holies ministering. But now the picture is this, that every Christian is given access to the very glory of God. And not only will we see God, but we will be like him. We will bear his image. We will bear his character. We will be transformed to be like him. We will see his face and his name will be written on our foreheads. But verse five goes even farther and it says this, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Night will be no more. God's presence his goodness, his glory, his light will so fill things that we will say night is no more. And this isn't simply a statement about day and night. This is a statement about the reality of what darkness represents. It represents evil. It represents suffering. It represents grief and depression and despair and despondency. All these things are wrapped up in saying the night will be no more. This is the hope that we have as Christians. So one day we will see God We will see God in one another because we will all bear his image and we will see all things in light of the glory of God. And this is the hope that we have as Christmas that Christ who came into the world as the light of the world is really making all things new. That here today, we have the light of Christ in us. But we really look forward to the fullness of what Isaiah has promised. He's promised an everlasting kingdom a time of righteousness and justice and peace where God will forever be with his people. Emmanuel, God with us, as it says in Isaiah 7, 14, that God will dwell with his people. But as is, we stand right now between two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of, or two advents. This is is the first advent and the second advent. Two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. For those who know Christ, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And so as we await Christ's second advent, it's not merely that we just sit around waiting for things to be new, but Christ actually calls us and he commissions us. He gives us an identity and a mission that we are the light of the world. Knowing him, knowing Christ, having been transformed and delivered and brought into his kingdom, he gives us a mission and an identity. And so this is the story that we remind ourselves at Christmas. It's a story of who we are as a people. It's a people who have been saved by God from darkness and delight. It's it's a people who have this light in us and it shines through us as the hope for the world. And so that's why this is the story that we remind ourselves of. It's the story that we tell to one another. And it's the story that we proclaim to the world because we have the hope of Christ who is the light of the world. And we wait for the day when he returns and all darkness is pushed back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us in our place of despair. You come to us in the darkness. That we don't have anything to offer in that, but you simply love and care for your people. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came as the light of the world. I pray for the darkness that we are living in and experiencing today. I pray that the hope of Christ would grow in our hearts and minds. 
that we would know that hope and be defined by that hope and live that hope out. Pray that as we go to work, as we go to be with family, as we go to our communities, that that light would live in us and shine through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.